0: Welcome back, or welcome for the first time to the Semester at Sea Wavelengths podcast. This is episode six, and I, Patrick Fennell, member of the Young Alumni Council and Voyager on the spring 2014 semester, will be your host. Every episode on this podcast, we hear interviews, stories, and other audio from students, alumni, and staff. But first, just as a reminder, Semester at Sea is a biannual study abroad program taking place during the fall and spring semesters where students get the opportunity to study abroad on a ship and where the world becomes your classroom. Semester at Sea is hosted by ISE, the Institute for Shipboard Education, a nonprofit based out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Semester at Sea is made possible with support of listeners like you. Whether students, alumni, or neither, visit semesteratsea.org to get involved and find out more. You can also find Semester at C on any of your favorite social media platforms. Applications are currently open and accepted on a rolling basis. Donations are welcome and serve students the opportunity and experiences like you hear on this show. Now, today's first segment. On August 5th, 2014, while the MV Explorer, the ship of Semester at Sea at the time, was docked outside of Holinsky, Russia. That evening, a TEDx event was held on the ship, and the event's theme was Anchors Away from Ideas to Action. Now you will hear from Julie Engerin, an excerpt from that evening, her speech entitled The Bug.
1: Mrs. Ongeron, you had the bug, right?" I looked up, and there's little voice from the treehouse went on to say, I mean, you fought the bug. My grandmother had the bug. She fought the bug, but she didn't beat it. And you know what happened since she didn't beat it? She died. The bug. Tomorrow marks the one-year anniversary of my cancer diagnosis. It was a Tuesday afternoon, Last summer, I was at Playland with my son. We were counting our tickets in the arcade, seeing which prizes we could buy with all these tickets we had. when my phone rang, I looked at my cell phone. it was my doctor, so I answered it. She said to me, "Julie, is this a good place or a good time for you to talk? Uh, I have your biopsy results." I said, "Well. I'm at an amusement park with my son. Let me see if I can move somewhere where I can hear you. She paused and she said to me, Julie, this isn't a good time to tell you this. You're not going to process what I say. I'm going to give you my cell phone number and you can call me back when you get home and I'll explain it all again. Doctors don't typically give out their cell phone numbers. Next, I heard a few words that stung invasive cancer, hysterectomy. You will meet with the surgeon on Thursday. By this time, my five-year-old was losing patience. He pulled on my arm and said, Mom, let's go ride the log ride. So off we went, and so my journey began. When I got home, I called the doctor back, and things started to sink in. I called my husband at work, and I pulled him out of a meeting. I started to make childcare arrangements so that we could meet with the surgeon. When we did meet with the surgeon, things really started to make sense or not make sense. She said we'd start with surgery, what they call a radical hysterectomy, to deal with the initial tumor. And because there was invasion into the lymph system, they would then proceed with chemotherapy and radiation. But she went on to say that, The scan showed suspicion of three other unrelated cancers in my thyroid, in my liver, and in my stomach. This had been a particularly difficult few years for us because we wanted more children, but my body would not cooperate. So this news seemed like a death sentence in that regard. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how I was going to take care of myself or my son, I said to my husband, you didn't sign up for this. He said, actually, I did. Remember, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health? Now we had just recently moved to a new town and we were trying to really create that kind of community, that proverbial village in which to raise our child. I started to strategize on how was I gonna get through this? A five-year-old boy can be really motivating. I sought out the best healers, the best doctors, the best hospitals. I called in my yoga teacher, and I had her come to my house to teach me breathing and poses to stay calm. I researched the hell out of the right diet for cancer patients. I pulled together everything I'd read about how to overcome diversity, and I reached out to the smartest people I knew, One woman in particular said to me, Julie, your job here is to stay present and see what your cancer diagnosis has to teach you about yourself. I also reference a French philosopher and Jesuit priest who I'd read had said, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience, but rather spiritual beings having a human experience. I knew I had to pull it together. I could be the person who I wanted to be while my body fought cancer. I began to meditate daily, even if I could only hold it together for a minute at a time. I used guided imagery to change my references about that chemo in my body from poison to something more positive and constructive. And I reached out to people I hardly knew, and I asked for help. As I mentioned, we had recently moved to a new town. We were trying to get to know our neighbors better, and we had been planning for a long time to get together with two couples to go to dinner, and that dinner was going to be the day after we met with the surgeon. I wasn't really sure whether we should still go, and I thought about it, and then I knew what to do. I walked down the street to my neighbor's house, And in her front hallway, I told her what I was facing. I didn't really know her, but I needed her. I asked her if she would quietly fill the others in because I wanted to go out. I wanted to have a great night. And we did. And then after dinner, these two women hugged me and they said, we are going to get you through this. They called me the next day and they started to help me strategize on a plan, a plan that let me stay in charge. They asked me where did Michael need to be, who would he feel comfortable going home with, who could take me to the doctor, and then who could just do things like make meals or run errands, buy groceries, things that we needed. I came to the realization that while I couldn't control cancer, I was starting to feel pretty empowered to control my response to it. So these women, these women that helped me make this plan, they helped me turn an otherwise terrifying situation into one that created friendships and celebrated community. And then I had to be honest with my five-year-old son. I had to use simple terms. I had to describe real parts of the anatomy and I had to name it as hard as it was I had to say cancer. And as our dear social worker correctly predicted, that set the stage for having the really tough conversations with our son, something that continues to serve us very well. A friend of mine who was a cancer survivor said to me early on, she said, Julie, cancer won't always be this consuming. And she described something that made sense. She said, when you first are diagnosed, it's like cancer's sitting on top of you in the front seat of the car, and you can't see where you're going, you can't navigate. But then slowly the cancer will move to the passenger seat, and then to the back seat, and eventually it will be something in the rear view mirror. She was right. Today, my body shows no evidence of cancer. Cancer sucks. It's messy, it's painful, and it's confusing. But cancer is the best teacher I've ever had about life, the human spirit, and how people can truly love one another through a crisis. Remember that little boy in the treehouse? Well, his family was going through a tragedy of their own, but his mother reached out, and she was one of my tribe that saw me through these dark days. I briefed her on that exchange that we had from the treehouse, and she said, Julie, I'm so glad you beat cancer in more ways than one. And she said, thank you so much for your openness with that little boy. Because of your story, he's gotten the strength to begin to talk about and reconcile his own loss. So why do I tell all of this to you? This has not been the worst year of my life. Some people talk about silver linings. I would say I created my own this year. My friends talk about how they grew by putting their own skills to bear to help me and to help my family. I'll tell you that transformational experiences come in all shapes and sizes. We come on Semester at Sea because we're curious about the world and we trust that we're embarking on something great. What if we were to use that same sense of adventure to approach all that life had to offer and begin to create our own silver linings? I want to share with you a quote. Pema Shondran says, There's a common misunderstanding that the best way to live life is to avoid pain when a much more interesting, kind, adventurous, and joyful approach is to begin to develop our curiosity, not caring whether the object of our inquisitiveness is bitter or sweet. We can endure a lot of pain and pleasure for the sake of finding out who we are, what this world is, how we tick, and how our world ticks, and how the whole thing just is. So my message to you is that when the universe seems to be cruel to you, someone you know, or someone that you just met, open the door and see what's on the other side. Open the door. Allow yourself to be vulnerable enough to ask for help, or reach out. Allow yourself to unveil the experience of helping someone and reveal the really juicy stuff that life has to offer.
0: Since 1963, Semester at Sea has given over 73,000 individuals from 1,700 academic institutions an unparalleled experience of visiting more than 60 countries across six of the seven continents. Semester at Sea serves undergraduate, gap year, and graduate students. Furthermore, The Lifelong Learner Program allows non-students to experience, explore, and learn alongside the ship's students. If you or someone you know wishes to apply or donate to this world-shifting experience, please visit semesteratsea.org for more information. Next up, we will hear from Daphne Spain, a former professor of urban and environmental planning at the University of Virginia, As she retired in December 2016, you will hear Daphne deliver a seminar about gendered public spaces and their role in shaping women's rights in different cultures. Enjoy. Welcome to tonight's Explorer Seminar. I'm delighted to introduce Daphne Spain from the University of Virginia's Architecture Department, who's going to be speaking tonight about making space for women's rights. Thank you, Daphne. All
2: right, before I get into the talk, I'd like to give you a little background on the precedents to these images that I'm gonna show you, the project I'm talking about now. I've spent most of my career exploring the spaces that women occupy and how that affects their status. So in the early 1990s, I worked on a project that I called Gendered Spaces, and it was a cross-cultural and historical study in which I found that in societies and cultures where men and women are separated by tradition or by mandate. Uh, Where they're separated in homes, schools, and workplaces, women's status is lower. And the opposite of that being, if they're integrated in those places, then women's status is higher. And if you think about how that operates, it's because what we think of as male knowledge is typically the knowledge that conveys status. And if you think in American history about the college-level college education that was closed to women until, actually, after the Civil War, when the Morrill Act provided incentives, monetary incentives, for schools to go coeducational. And it wasn't just because it was the right thing to do at the time but it was because there had been so many losses of men during the Civil War that these colleges needed women to take up the seats. So that was one example. And as soon as women, as a group, attained higher educational level, then they were able to take on different occupations and they were able to become more autonomous. That's always something I'm looking at. And in that scenario, the way I was studying that, The women themselves and the men were passive. And my next project, I examined the places, new places in the city that women created through their voluntary associations. And these were places they created on behalf of others. So I specifically looked at the YWCA, the Salvation Army, the College Settlements Association, and the National Association of Colored Women. And all of those organizations created new places like settlement houses that were completely new at the time and boarding homes, vocational schools. And the way they were operating on behalf of others is that they were these, and it was typically college-educated women, both white and African-Americans. The leaders in these organizations were trying to make the city less hazardous for immigrants single women both white and african american who were floating flowing flooding into cities at the end of the end of the 19th century and the time i was looking at was specifically from about 1890 to 1920 so in that instance through voluntary associations i found that women could create places on behalf of others What I'm talking about now has to do with the 1960s and 70s in the United States and the places that feminists created for themselves and for other women, but basically for themselves because they wanted to reinforce their newly won rights and they wanted to have a physical uh, manifestation in the city of places that they could make a stand, basically. If you know Lefebvre, this is a way of um, establishing your rights to the city. So before I go into this, I want to give you some idea of what it was like in the 1960s, because most of you in the audience are young enough that you're taking for granted a lot of these rights that feminists worked for in the 60s and 70s. So the first thing that it was legal to do was to deny women access to contraception, unmarried women. Any woman, married or unmarried, could be denied access to an abortion. So this is pre-Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision that made abortion a a choice for a woman. And it was also legal, or extra-legal perhaps, to commit domestic violence because it was considered a private issue and if a husband was beating his wife, uh, even if the police were called, they were most likely to say, well, this is a family issue and you can take care of it yourselves. It was also legal to deny women admittance, admission to some state universities, and that would apply to University of Virginia, uh, which did not really admit undergraduate women until 1972. So most other state universities were ahead of UVA in that regard. This one you might not think about because you take your credit cards for granted. But in the 60s up through the early 70s, married women or any type, uh, any marital status, women could only get credit, and that means a credit card basically, if they had a husband or a father to sign for them to co-sign, and it was legal to disregard a wife's income when the couple was applying for a mortgage. Why would that be? Yeah, that the assumption was that if you were married you were going to have kids and drop out of the labor force, and therefore your income had to be discounted. And I've talked about this in my gender and society class before, listing men's and women's jobs separately in the want ads. I don't even know if there are such things anymore in newspapers. Do they have them? Are there help wanted ads? I guess so. Okay. So imagine a time in which this column was for men's jobs, this column was for women's jobs, and guess what? This column paid less than jobs in that column. So the National Organization for Women was instrumental in overturning that. And at the time, the Pittsburgh paper lamented that it would be the end of the newspaper industry, that it would bring it to its knees if there were no such thing anymore as a separation between male and female want ads. We clearly see that didn't happen. It was something. It was um, digital era that has brought newspapers to their knees. Here's another one. If you were applying for a job, you could be asked if you were using contraception. Now, for those of you who are uh, faculty and have been on search committees, you know that that went out the door a long time ago. There are a whole list of questions now that cannot be asked, and part of that, the reason for that is that they once were asked. You know about this, it was legal to pay women less than men in the same job, same occupation, and again, National Organization for Women lobbied strongly, uh, and the Equal Pay Act of 1963, went into effect before the women's movement really became extremely active, but it was rarely enforced until uh, members of NOW lobbied. And then this one, a woman could be fired for becoming pregnant. And that wasn't just as school teachers, but it was any type of, of a job. So this is what Second wave feminism was trying to overturn all of these, what they call what we call private troubles, turning them into public issues. So, for example, domestic violence was no longer going to be uh, considered a family problem that a husband and wife should take care of alone, but it was going to be a public issue with policies against it and with ways of punishing. Um, those who were doing the assaulting. So let me also explain what the second wave feminism is. First wave feminism was the era before the Civil War from the Seneca Falls Convention to 1920 when the feminists, what we would think of feminists now, were called suffragettes. So they were fighting for the vote. And it took you know, over 50 years to achieve that. But they finally did achieve it in 1920. Second wave feminism is referring to the feminism that occurred, the feminist movements that occurred in the 60s and 70s and throughout the 80s as well. But the peak activity is typically considered to be in the 70s. And, of course, now there's a third wave feminism and all different types of feminism. But this was the era that I wanted to study. Okay, so... I'm dealing with the same issue that I did 20 years ago, and that's that gendered spaces will highlight conflicts between expectations for men's and women's behavior, their proper roles. Mandatory gendered spaces do what I call put women in their place, that they have very little choice about where they're, how they're going to spend their time and where, whereas voluntary voluntarily created spaces allow women to claim their own space and establish their rights. So in this presentation I'm going to talk about reproductive rights, the right to civic participation, physical safety, physical mobility and recreation and leisure. And these are all considered components of um, human rights and the ability to express autonomy or independence. The feminist women's health centers started in LA, Los Angeles, in 1971. And while I was doing research on this project, I met the founder of the first feminist health clinic in Los Angeles. Her name is Carol Downer. And it was basically in response to the difficulty women had in getting any type of information about contraception, family planning, anything. And the women in Los Angeles, they were not um, necessarily grouped, they were in different groups, sorry, they had different interests, but the ones who were interested in healthcare, what they called putting women's health in women's hands, were creating these feminist health clinics. And they were constantly under attack by the police. So they would send in, in, in Carroll's clinic, they sent in um, an undercover agent to claim that they were performing abortions there. This is before 1973. Well, they weren't, but it, every time there was any type of information in the news about abortion, somebody would visit one of these clinics and make it more difficult for them. This one is from Chico, California. So Chico, L.A., California has a whole, uh, a whole series or had a whole series of feminist health clinics. And this sign, this banner right here, my body, my life, my choice, that was the slogan at the time, and that's what led to the idea of pro-choice language. Now, this is an image of... A building that was both a feminist federal credit union and a women's health center in Detroit. Most of the buildings that these places were located were repurposed. They weren't originally built for what the um, the purpose that the feminists wanted to give them because Feminists didn't have enough money. Activists didn't have enough money to buy their own goods, their own buildings. So the credit union was created in response to women's inability to get credit from a bank. And so the idea was that if you dealt with a feminist federal credit union, then the money went into other projects, other feminist projects, helping women start businesses, for example. And they were nonprofits, so they weren't making uh, money for the board of directors or the bank owners. And this also shows you how scarce space was, because both of these were in that same building. And in fact, both were on the first floor. The woman who started this in Detroit lived in Los Angeles when I was out there talking with the pioneers. And she is now a private investigator So she's done different things with her life. Okay, so why is this important, particularly with reproductive rights? Well, these are the sorts of things that are happening now. We've got challenges to Roe v. Wade, legislatures closing clinics, bombings, murders of doctors who perform abortions, doctors and nurses, and state legislatures imposing restrictions on when a woman can have an abortion, how old a woman is, whether a minor has to have permission from parents, for example. And Operation Rescue, they basically were put out of business because National Organization for Women sued them and bankrupted them, basically, and so they don't exist as the same type of organization they did before. But there certainly are still people who picket clinics where abortions are performed and harass women who are trying to basically practice their rights. Now, Hobby Lobby Supreme Court ruling. This is really recent. Who knows what this is? Right, because it was against the religious principles of the owners of Hobby Lobby. So this was considered a setback, obviously, and there's been a lot of pushback about this, but it's just another example of ways in which women's rights are under fire. And I think the reproductive rights are the most important of any of these because without reproductive rights, women don't have many other choices about which occupations to pursue whether to go to college, not having to worry about interrupting study or work for an unplanned pregnancy. Okay. Oh, the head of Operation Rescue, Randall Terry, once boasted that his thousands of people, his thousands of followers, getting arrested outside abortion clinics had done more for his Organization in terms of raising its visibility than they could ever have done without doing all of that. Okay, so those were examples from the U.S., the health clinic and the Federal Credit Union, Feminist Federal Credit Union, and that had to do with reproductive rights. In Germany, in the 1970s, 1980s, women decided that Women who were having children and staying at home, who were out of the labor force for a while, needed a place where they could gather and still be engaged in social life, still be engaged in discussions of politics and policy. They would bring their kids here, so there would be on-site child care, and they would trade services, and they would trade expertise. Some women might work there. And It was created out of this idea that women were becoming invisible in public when they had children and had to stay at home. And this would provide an opportunity for them to be visible as a group and individually. And this, the print right down here, says the vision of this Mother Center is to enable members to be effective in using their individual and collective knowledge and experience as catalysts for personal and social changes that benefit mothers and families. And I met one of the founders of Mother Center in Germany, and they thought that there should actually be a Nobel Prize established for anyone who could figure out the proper work-life balance and provide women with the support that they needed. And they made, policy decisions on the local level as well. So that model was adopted in uh, Eastern Bloc countries after the fall of communism, and there are about 800 of them worldwide now. So it's been a very successful model for women to be in public, but, and also it was important, they thought, for children to be in public and not isolated in a nuclear family. Okay, in India, as in some other countries, Brazil, for example, there are all women police stations. And the reason these came about, the reason they were demanded by women, is that domestic violence is so prevalent in India and violence against women that women felt that their complaints weren't being taken seriously by male officers. And so they created their own female police force. And sometimes these were in the same building as the men's police force, police office, but this was specifically for women and staffed by women. And so here are some of the officers. You could find this as a women's police station, find that from a distance. Now, ladies' special trains are They've also been initiated, and I think there's some in Japan, actually, to promote women's physical mobility. Because, in India, there is a practice called Eve-teasing. And Eve-teasing means just sexual harassment on the street, on public transportation, and women got fed up with it. So, should women have to put up with that on public transportation? No. So the solution was to create these ladies' special trains. And here's a very colorful one. They're not that many. They're only in eight cities. And they're relatively few compared with all the other rail lines. Here's an image of um, there is a man in this car, but he's selling newspapers and such. And these are women who feel that they can travel more comfortably. So they're with other women. They're not going to have any problems. And a large proportion of women in India work, and they need to use public transit to get to work. Here are some of the uh, officers again on the train. And then I couldn't resist this one other one,
3: we're getting reports now of an incident in Mumbai where some men, some Eve teasers reportedly were thrashed for harassing women. They were thrashed at a Mumbai station incident actually took place yesterday. And uh, this is uh, the footage, the visuals that we're getting you uh, of uh, this particular incident, which took place yesterday. These uh, men are on your screens right now being thrashed by the public uh, for Eve teasing, being thrashed by the public for harassing certain women at uh, Mumbai station. Megha joining us uh, with details on this incident. Yes, Mega. what have you learned? Well, we'll try and reconnect with Mega as soon as we can. But uh, this footage is uh, with us and we're showing you this incident at Mumbai station where certain men who were eve-teasing and harassing women were thrashed by the public. We'll try and uh, reconnect with Mega, who's uh, getting us more details on this incident. And uh, she is with us now. Yes, Mega. Well, the incident's taken place uh, last evening late last evening and uh, uh, you know this is one of those incidents where uh, people have got hold of uh, of of the teasers and uh, you know beaten them up really bad of course they were handed over to the police after that and uh, police of course took them in custody post this incident but uh, this comes this probably happens to be one of those incidents, again, that has been caught on camera and many other incidents in the city of Mumbai, almost every day goes unnoticed, unreported. Right. This happens to be one of those that has been that for which we have visual proof and the police has taken action.
2: Okay, so that was an example of the public actually reaching a, a collective problem, the level of a collective problem. And the public taking it on. So as opposed to the private trouble of one or two women alone on a bus with men and being harassed, it turned into a public issue <clears throat> that there had to be something, uh, a solution. I don't know if beating up people is the solution, but certainly the, uh, the trains were. Now, the pink taxis in India, Mexico, Russia, these were created, and these are typically private enterprise. But the, train, the ladies' special trains, by the way, were instituted by the Indian government. The pink taxis come more from the private sector, and they were created for the same reason that the ladies' trains were. This is another physical mobility issue, is that women were harassed, sometimes threatened by cab drivers. And the idea is if they had their own cabs by women, driven by women for women and children, then it would eliminate that problem. Well, it did when where these exist Again, they're very small fleets. But some of the drivers are not too happy about it. They're not convinced that a pink taxi makes sense because they think they're just driving around with a flag saying there are only women here. You know, easy prey, easy target. But for the most part, the women and children who are traveling around in cities are keeping these businesses going. So there is a demand for them. And in the Middle East, there is the demand certainly by Muslim women who can't be in public with men that they're not related to. So these taxis give them greater mobility. All right. Everything I've shown you up until now was a type of space that women created for themselves and for others to establish their rights. But now I'm going to show you a few pictures, a few images, which were all that I could get, of a mandatory space created by the Iranian government in Tehran. And these are called Mother's Paradise Gardens. And in them, or parks, Mother's Paradise Parks, in them, women who have to be veiled on the street can go in, take off their veils, put on jogging clothes, engage in archery, swim, jog, do anything they want. They can even take cell phone cameras in, which at one point that wasn't a possibility, but it is a way that the government says it's creating equal opportunities for women in public Feminists there say, no, actually, equal opportunities would be if you let us into the same parks as the men. Um, and being in this type of park means that women are invisible in public, because that's the whole point. And the government argues that it's for women's safety, and many feminists argue that it's not um, it's not the solution. They ran a uh, campaign, actually, objecting to being uh, barred from the parks, men's parks, by saying, do you want all of us to get fat? Do you want all these women to get fat? Because we can't exercise otherwise. So here they created this park. It ha- and this shows you the, the fence around it. This is an opening day ceremony. So many women, so many thousands of women, went into the first park over the first couple months that they built other parks as well. And then the last image here, swimming pool, empty, obviously they're not going to allow people in, photographers in to take pictures of women in swim trunks. Okay, so the main points here are that we need to pay attention to how women's rights are spatialized, whether they're voluntary or mandatory. And if they're voluntary, then they can help empower women. They can work to women's benefit. If they're involuntary or if they're mandatory, then it will serve to reinforce a system of separation and lack of autonomy, lack of independence for women. So I think what I'd like you to take away from this is when you're traveling through the cities, Try to pay attention to the types of spaces that women occupy. And is it, can you tell if they were voluntarily created? Can you tell if they were uh, imposed on them, on women? And what does that mean for women's status in these different countries? So once you take a spatial perspective, It helps you see parts of a city that you might not pay attention to. And the final thing is that the lesson here from the second wave feminism, certainly, and this is around the world, is that spaces can be changed, and you can change them if that's what you want. If you think that the spaces that you are relegated to are too confining in some way, then you have the resources, you have the agency to be able to change those spaces. So that's what I would encourage you to do. Thank you. Alex, one other follow-up to your point was in the US, a lot of those original places and the places that I looked at were the health centers, um, feminist bookstores, domestic violence shelters, And um, now I can't remember the fourth thing. Anyway, they're all pretty much defunct now because in the case of women's health, it's been absorbed into hospitals and practices now that have women's wellness, you know, places or birthing rooms, that sort of thing. There were hundreds of feminist bookstores, and those have all been eaten up by the big conglomerates. The only type of place that still exists is the domestic violence shelter. And that's disturbing because that we still need it, but what most people don't realize is that there were no domestic violence shelters before the 1970s. And that's in the US, and I don't think there were very many in other countries. So that, <clears throat> That recognition that it's a public issue is fairly recent. In the Netherlands, they have this shelter, the domestic shelter, right in the city with a sign on the door that says this is a shelter. We don't do that in the U.S. They're always, the the locations are hidden, and even Google Maps doesn't identify shelters but in the netherlands they consider domestic violence a public health issue and they want to bring attention to it and so that's why it's clearly labeled and women can come and go i think when i saw that i thought maybe it's also the case that not as many people in the netherlands have guns because there are stories you know every year about partners coming to find their wives or girlfriends who left, and there's murder, mayhem, general, like that. So we have a higher level of violence, I think, in the U.S. than many of those other countries. I don't know um, about the international examples. And since there are relatively few single-sex spaces in the U.S. now, I don't know... What the situation would be. Ideally, people in the organization would say, "We accept whatever you th- say you are—cisgender, transgender—and transgender, here, if this is, if you are presenting as a woman, then you're welcome into this space." But I'll tell you, uh, some of the older feminists, the real pioneers of the second wave, are not at all okay with that. Their opinion is. You're born a woman and you go through life, the majority of your life as a woman, and you, have, you experience certain types of discrimination or treatment, unfair treatment, and they don't want to include uh, male to female transgender in these, their <clears throat> conferences occasionally. Or the Women's uh, Music Festival in Michigan, spelled W O M Y N, Women's Festival. They are hardline. Cisgender, basically. Thanks.
0: Okay. And that just about wraps it up for this week. Special thank you to everyone involved, all the home crew members at the office in Fort Collins, and a special thank you to you for joining. To any alumni, please reach out to the show. The content on this show is only possible with your help and your experiences. Once again, to apply, donate, or learn more, please visit semesteratsea.org. The Semester at Sea podcast will be back in two weeks. Thank you for listening this week, and until then last but not least we have a little earworm for you today written by linnea linnea is a singer songwriter from chicago who took the leap of joining semester at sea and being and i quote that kid who brought a guitar onto the summer 2013 mediterranean voyage when the voyage was coming to its end and a talent show was announced she knew she had no choice but to write a song summarizing life on board and let me tell you this one is sure an earworm enjoy and keep an ear out for next episode until then sailing off
4: It's a bad call to hook up on the first night And we learned right away that the rumors spread Almost as fast as Pink Eye They spread as fast as Pink Eye Some history, There's no place I'd rather be Than a 4DMV for the summer 2013 Some summer Club Alley, and what happens at trolley bus stays at trolley bus, and what happens at Club Opium stays at Club Opium. What happens at Urban Beach stays at Urban Beach, and now let's go and try to tell our friends at home that this is just an educational voyage, an educational voyage. Some mysteries. There's no place I'd rather. Then aboard the MV for the summer 2013. So, Mr. see there's no place I'd rather be than aboard the MV for the summer. 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 Then aboard the MV for the summer